ever since Matthew chapter 18, Jesus has been talking to the disciples and he's constantly, they're dealing with the issue of what is great. Who is great uh, in the kingdom? And he's in, Jesus has been emphasizing that his, the kingdom greatness is measured by humility. Uh, that that's the first key. And then in Matthew 19, verse 14, he, the, he taught that trusting fully in the Lord and denying oneself and giving instead of getting also is a mark of greatness. Uh, then he went on and focused on the fact that having the opposite of atti attitude of what's in it for me is a sign of greatness. Uh, and then he continued that lesson in Matthew chapter 20 in verses 17 through 19 where he gives that last warning about his death, his crucifixion, and the, and the resurrection. And that warning is directly related or tied to the lesson that we see again today about humility and kingdom greatness. And it's a lesson that if you've been here over the last couple of months, you would think you're at a soap, watching a soap opera because it's just the same lesson over and over and again. And so my perspective is, is when I hear Jesus teaching the same thing over and over and over again, it's probably because his people are a little bit dull and need to be reminded over and over and over again. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that's true for me, that I just have to be reminded over and over again of the lessons that Jesus is teaching. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20, and read through 28. So go ahead and just do that on your own if you have your Bibles, if you have your iPhones or Androids or sermon notes, and read Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. And if somebody at your table wants to read out loud, go ahead and do that.
Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We acknowledge that your truth cuts like a knife. It pierces our consciousness. It divides between the heart, soul, and spirit. And we ask, Jesus, that you would search us by your word, by your spirit today, and transform us by the work of your spirit and your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it mean to be great? Probably we don't ask that question out loud to a lot of people, or we don't go around and tell other people how great we are, or we don't ask them, don't you think I'm great? Um, I know in the sports arena that's, that's true. There's a term called GOAT, which means greatest of all time. And you hear that, you know, people claiming that they're the greatest of all time. And we have those kind of debates. But you don't usually find that, you know, in your normal conversation sitting around the, you know, the dining room table or something saying, don't you think I'm the greatest? Um, most husbands would know never to ask that question in their families. Uh, but we ask it in other ways. What does it mean to be really successful? How can I find that kind of success? What, it does, what does it mean to be significant? What does it mean to be respected or influential? What would I do or what would it be like if I won the lottery and I could do these things? And there's always that sense that somehow it makes us feel like we're a little bit more important or we're, you know, we're, we're more significant or, in another term, great. Um, we may even try, may find ourselves comparing ourselves to other people. So I'm a little bit better than they are. I'm better than they are. Or then even when something bad happens, or, you know, how come that happened to me instead of them? So there's this, that, always that comparison that goes on. And in this passage, Jesus is teaching his disciples about what it means to be great in his kingdom. And he's been doing this for two chapters now. And he will continue to do it. We will go into a lot of the parables that will continue to emphasize that. And I think it's a truth that he's pounding home over and over again. But it's not until the day of Pentecost that it seems like they, it clicks. And they truly understand and they get it. Um, but I, before we even get into the text, I want to emphasize that true greatness is an act of grace. Um, it's a matter of grace. We can't even define what greatness is. We can't even experience it without the grace of God revealing it to us. So in order to be great, it takes grace. Um, it is he who teaches us what true greatness is. And it's not by being seen by all those around of us as influential and respected and important. But instead, it manifests itself in a relationship and willing service to God and to others. And so Jesus gives us a contrast between our views of worldly greatness and importance and spiritual greatness and importance. So during this passage, I'd just like to point out a couple of things. But starting in verses 20 and 21, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand 
and one at your left in the kingdom. In these verses, you're going to see ignorant, trusting, and yet prideful question. And that's sort of an interesting combination of words, isn't it? It's an ignorant question, but yet it's a trusting question, yet it's a proud question. And I think we ask the same questions on a regular basis um, as we go through this. And you see it especially clear in the lives of James and John at this point. Their pride and their ignorance blinded them to the true nature of what greatness was. They're still thinking that greatness means a place of honor. Greatness means a hierarchy. You know, that's what they're perceiving. Uh, and you know the story. The mother, the sons of Zebedee, who was probably Salome, which is the sister of Mary, which means that she's Jesus' aunt. And so James and John are his cousins. And we further, we find in Mark that the whole setup here was done by James and John. They went to their mother and said, hey, mom, you should have an in with Jesus. You're his aunt. Would you go to him and ask him if we could sit in the places of honor? So how could Jesus refuse his aunt? So she goes, and she says, can my boys have the position of honor in your kingdom? And before you get too hard on James and John, recognize that it's a question that is ignorant, unaware of reality, and it's a little bit prideful, but it's based on faith. It's based on faith. So a lot of times people will say things that just aren't accurate. They're based on their own ignorance of the word, but it's still based on faith. Because remember in Matthew 28, or 19:28, Jesus had told the disciples that they were going to reign with him. And they would sit on these 12 thrones. And they would judge the tribes of Israel. So they're remembering that truth. And so they're saying, okay, I know what this is what we're going to do, and this is where we're going to be, but I want to sit right next. I want to sit next to the, to the power. I want to be right there. So the very fact that James and John want to be on the right and the left side of Jesus respectively, they are showing that they took Jesus' words to heart, that they believed him, even though they misunderstood him. Um... They misunderstood that his kingdom, and they mis misunderstood his greatness. But at least they are showing faith that what Jesus said is true, which means they're open to hearing truth. And that's a wonderful place to be, that even though we may be unaware or ignorant of some of the things, are we open to hearing the word of God and hearing and being open to being challenged to grow. Um, but this has been a standing problem of the disciples all along, all of them. Still trying to figure out, you know, the pecking order for them. And they still haven't gotten it at this point. And he's only a few days away from Jerusalem and a few days away from his crucifixion. 
Secondly, they mistook the, they mistook the nature of the kingdom of God. They were thinking, okay, as soon as this happens, we're going to be up there. We're going to be ruling, you know, we're going to have these thrones. It's going to be a glorious time. Things are going to finally come our way. Finally, we get what, you know, what we believe we deserve. And this is not quite. That's not quite how it goes. Um, and think about James and John at this point. All along, throughout the book of Matthew, who has everybody been going to to be the go-to person? Peter. They have a question? Hey, Peter, you go ask Jesus. And then Jesus, you know, Peter would always go and ask, and it would say that the disciples were all murmuring. G Peter would go and ask. And so it's like Peter's the go-to person at this point. And now James and John have gone off to their side and said, listen, this is our chance. It's not going to be about Peter. You know, we can get over our jealousy of Peter. And now we can be number one and number two. Because um, they want to be in the position of influence. Now, so we may not define ourselves as great. But if we struggle with jealousy, is that an element that says, I want to be maybe not the greatest, but at least greater than. And so this is still going on. They're jockeying for position with one another. And the very reason you are jockeying for position is you don't understand my kingdom. You don't know what you're asking. You don't understand what greatness is. So in this passage, he begins to teach them about the true nature of greatness. These men were disciples, and yet they were blinded. Their faith was mixed with ignorance when it came to the issue of greatness. Now, it also should be in a, maybe a backhanded form or a subtle form of encouragement for all of us. Because if these two disciples could have a faith that was so mixed with ignorance, it's not surprising that many of us might have the same problem. But when we act so convinced or arrogant in our opinion, and it's based on our opinion and not based on the word, we're finding ourselves in trouble. And I will, t I will be with people who will say, this is exactly what God wants me to do. And I go, and where do you get that? Well, I feel that way. And I go, yeah, but where does that feeling come from? And they can never bring it back to the scripture. It's always based on a feeling. And that's the problem with Christianity today. That people are compromising beliefs based on feeling, not based on truth. But if it feels that way, then it must be okay. And that's because we still think of Jesus wanting to always provide us with a place of happiness, not a place of obedience. And so this is what Jesus is saying. It's, you know, it's not going to be that way. So Jesus says to him, you don't understand my kingdom. Because the kingdom I'm going to bring in at first is going to be a kingdom of humiliation. It's going to be a kingdom of suffering. It's going to be a kingdom of pain. And that's what I'm going to be doing. 
It's going to require that you sacrifice everything for me. And then there will be triumph, victory, and glory. And so we too sometimes can be blinded by its cost. Jesus wants his disciples to understand that this isn't the prosperity gospel. This is truth. This is God calls us to be obedient regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the feeling, regardless of anything else. And how many times when we talk about coming to Christ, do we try to be honest with people and say, you know, following Christ, he will transform you. But it doesn't mean that it's going to be a bed of roses. What it means is that during the struggles, during the difficulties, you now have an answer. You now have a resource. You now have a support. You now have a Savior who can empathize with whatever you're going through and give you the strength and the power to endure it so that you can have joy in the midst of your trials and your circumstances. So oftentimes the call of Christ is also a call to suffering. There is yet, there is blessing, but and greater blessing than the world will ever know, and a greater joy than the world will ever know, but along with it can come suffering, trials, temptations. J.C. Ryle says this, we ask that God would make us holy and good. That is a good request. Indeed, but are we prepared to be sanctified by any process, any process that God in his wisdom may call on us to pass through? This morning, Ed Slinkman is sitting in a hospital bed trying to get his blood counts up, trying to get his hemoglobin good, get his platelets up, so that he can continue his, his chemo. So then get his fourth treatment in. I, I can't honestly even put my mind around what Ed's going through. I can't put my mind around what Aaron has been going through for the last couple of years and living in the chronic pain and living that. And what I sit back and observe and these two men through all of that is an unbelievable confidence and trust and faith that God is in control. That these trials aren't an attack against them. These trials are also an opportunity for sanctification and growth in their own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And to hear Ed tell the stories of the people that he's been able to share his faith with wherever he is, is just astounding. It's astounding. And speaking of that, Wednesday, um, Dennis is going to be having surgery. I don't have to wake him up. Uh, <laughs> Dennis is going to be having surgery on Wednesday at 7 or 8? 7.30. Uh, at Mercy for an aneurysm that they've been trying to get. So I'll be praying for Dennis also for that. Um, so using any process to, to help us continue to be sanctified. And so the question, are we willing to be purified by affliction? To be drawn closer to God through pain. 
through sickness, through grief, through sorrows. See, the disciples are not even thinking about that when they put their mother up to going to Jesus to say, hey, can we be the greatest? But the second thing, notice in 22 and 23, Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared for by my Father. And Jesus saying, you know, you, you said you are going to drink from my cup, and you will. And they didn't really know what that meant, but Jesus is not saying that are you, not only are you able, but are you willing to drink from this cup? And the cup is always a picture of suffering. And especially it can be a picture of suffering the wrath of God. And so the disciples are saying, yeah, we can drink from that cup, and they will. James will be the first martyr. John will be the last one. James will be, you know, the first one killed. John will be set off to an island. And so they will both suffer their whole lives for the sake of Christ. But they don't know what it means to go to the cross and suffer the separation from God, the wrath of God, or the judgment of God for the carrying our sins um, to the cross. So they have no idea what it is that Jesus is to drink because Jesus is not simply to drink suffering and trial and persecution. So Jesus, and then you have Jesus there in the garden. And who's there with him? Peter, James, and John. And Jesus says, you know, stay awake with me. And they all go to sleep. And then after he's captured, what do all of the disciples do? Run. Run and hide. So here they're saying, yeah, we're, we're ready. We're, we're, we're going to go, we'll drink that cup. We're, 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 yeah, we're all in. And then, oh, I was all in, but I really didn't know what all in meant. So now I think, now they come back. But see, those are the same things that happened to us. It's easy to say we're all in until something bad happens. And then instead of being all in, it's how come? How come? Then you go on to verse 24 through 28. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. This is no longer the first shall be last. This is the first shall be the servant, the slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The other disciples were incensed that the brothers would go do that. Now what does it tell you about the other disciples? They're just as jealous as the two brothers. 
They're guilty of the very same thing that they're accusing the brothers of. And how many times does that happen in our lives? We point out the fault of somebody else, but because we're pointing out their fault, we are as just as guilty. You know. And so, you know, when I really realize that, it's really hard for me to point out somebody else's fault. Because I recognize that's not always my place. So again, Jesus begins contrasting the difference between worldly greatness and kingdom greatness. In verse 25, Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It's not that way among you. Jesus is saying, greatness in my kingdom is measured by an entirely different standard. Greatness in my kingdom consists of self-giving, of the outpouring of the self in service to others. For the glory of God. Not for what's in it for me. It's the kind of grace, greatness which finds its significance in serving others for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Now, servant of others, slave to others. How do you do that? How does that get played out in our families? How do we do that in the workplace? In our dealings with others? How do we do that in school? How do I, in my own home, learn what it means to serve my wife? without expecting or demanding that she serve me. Remember earlier on when that whole principle came forth when Jesus was talking about divorce, the disciples said, well, then it would be better not to get married. <laughs> Absolutely right. Because if you're going to be married, you're going to be in a lifetime of service to the other person. That's what it is. It's saying, what do you need? How can I serve you? How do I help you grow to your full potential? How do we do it in our workplace? How do we help serve others so that God can be glorified? See, what is your standard of greatness? Is it people acknowledge you or that you serve others? What does it look like? And Jesus is challenging us here. He is giving us his own example of what greatness is. Because in this passage, he goes on to, to the disciples, let me say to you, this is what greatness is. I have come into this world to serve, not to be served. And to give my life for the ransom of many. Jesus is beautifully setting before us the substitutionary atonement that he died as a ransom for our sins. Now, if Jesus can do that for us, is it really that hard to say, you know what, I can put, about, put aside some of my wants, some of my desires, and instead I can learn what it means to serve the other person. Now, the danger of everything that I just said just now is that somebody's going to go home and say to their spouse, <laughs> didn't you hear what Andy said? You're supposed to be serving me. And if you say that, the other spouse can say to them, obviously, you did not hear 
what Andy said. Because it's not about demanding our rights. And it's not about demanding that from someone. It's about us doing it willfully. I think when Jesus talks to women about what their role as a wife is, that's a private letter to them from God. And men read it. And when God talks to men about how they're supposed to be husbands, that's a private letter from God that women read. And they don't read their own letters. They read the other person's letter and say, this is what God told you. Instead of saying, you know, I'm not going to tell you what God told me, but I'm just going to do it. Jesus is beautifully setting before us the substitutionary atonement. The atoning work of Christ both enables us to love and serve others. And it gives us the proper example of our responsibility to give one another in the love and service of others. Again, J.C. Rowell says, True greatness consists not in receiving, but in giving. Not in selfish absorption of good things, but imparting good to others. Not in being served, but in serving. Not in sitting still and being ministered to, but in going out and ministering to others. It's a hard lesson. But Jesus taught it over and over again. And it's a lesson that I have to hear over and over again. Um, but as the saying of the Puritans, they said, nothing cleaves closer to the heart than pride. And getting rid of that pride is the hardest thing. Our pride keeps us back from loving and serving in this way. It is the only work of the Holy Spirit that can sever the pride from our heart. It's the work of grace. So Jesus has to teach this lesson over and over again to the disciples. And he probably needs to teach that lesson over and over again to us. It's hard work, but it's God's work. And surrendering it to God. Father, I just praise you and thank you for this day. And Lord, we recognize that even like James and John, you ask us, are we willing to take this cup? And what that really means. That even when we take communion, and we do take your cup, and we break, we take your body, all of that is saying and recognizing the sacrifice of love that you gave for us and that because of that love we too, we too can love others in that same way. We thank you and we praise you and we ask your continued blessing upon this time. So I pray in Christ's name. Amen.